0: happy that you that you accepted to come on the show I'm really I'm really excited I mean first of all we haven't talked for basically since I left SOIC since my my internship was over
1: yeah it's great to connect you know it's always good to connect with colleagues and uh we live in a very interesting uh world that moves pretty dynamically and rapidly and so it's always fun to hear and catch up
0: it really does like five years ago is feels like uh Ages. Like that's it's like so many things have happened, like the whole COVID period in between, like so many other things. I saw that you were really busy founding.
1: Yeah, that's- I mean I honestly uh I, I feel that my career look, I, I used to look at my career um in a two dimensional sort of world. You you know, mm-hmm. you you're getting accepted to a role, you try to work hard, get promoted, and move onwards. And just maybe five or six years ago it hit me that our career is much more than just a two-dimensional game. I mean, once you have that confidence and freedom, there's multiple things that you can be involved with. And so at some point, I I decided, look, uh, I I just reached the age of 40, and I said, I I really want a a shot at entrepreneurship. And, you know, worst case, what happens? It fails, right? Um, And I started to work on a few projects and fairly quickly found my co-founders in Israel, and we, we started Kahuna. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience for me. And, and again, now I've opened it more to, I'm involved with some investing and mentoring and um, I do some volunteering as well, aside to my uh, career endeavors.
0: Ah, huh. okay. So basically diversified like <laughs> all the things that you're doing. Like maybe for everyone who's listening, um, they might have looked you up on LinkedIn already, but could you give like a bit overview, like where you come from, what you're doing, anything you think is relevant?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I uh was born and raised in uh, in Israel. Um, grew up and uh and joined the military right after high school. Um I was in the paratroopers, you know, like every Israeli who wanted to participate and was very proud and on serving uh, country. Look, I'm part of the generation that was born uh with the internet in Israel somewhere in the 90s and uh, if you remember those sort of uh, dial-ups that had some squeaky noises <laughs> um, and I was fascinated by that world uh, not so much on on the computer science behind it but more about the new opportunities of, of scale and you know reaching people on the other side of of the globe and I knew that I'll be sort of involved with with media with uh, with the internet and, and so forth um I uh, Started my career in a startup called DMG in Israel um, right after I, uh, I finished uh, my undergrad degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, DMG was focused on, on the transition to the online world. So think about uh, 2006, 7, 8, uh, quite a lot of uh, budgets are moving from offline to online. And um, at the time, I actually didn't know, you know, th- that's kind of one of my first jobs that I found off of uh, school. And I didn't really know where that's going to lead me. Um, fast forward a few years after I graduated from MIT, a small company that you'd know by the name of Google came on campus and, <laughs> and looked for people with experience in the uh, online world. And so that was sort of a great entry uh, to say. I didn't have much experience then, but I, I did know a thing or two about online. And so I joined Google, spent the next five years there um, on a few organizations Uh, Managing a few teams. Um, My last role, I uh, collaborated with an executive in Ireland, and we built together a program for partners in the publishing space. So any Mm -hmm. technology vendor, whether it's compliance or monetization or different infrastructure technologies, was part of a program that Google was uh, setting up to in order to vet the partners and also give them more resources. Yeah. Um, So I spent my time there, and then this program, um, you know, what was scaling pretty rapidly and, uh, you know, it was well-known within Google and I I didn't really know what I'm going to do next. Uh, Luckily enough, I I was uh, very close with the leadership of uh, the top partner in that program company called Ezoic and uh, ended up uh, being poached from Google to Ezoic uh, in 2016. (laughs) So that was great. Um, And it's really interesting because, you know, I, I I spent five years at Google. I learned a lot and it's a great culture, but I didn't know how much I was missing. And uh, um, yeah, the skills that I didn't have by being in a startup. And so uh, the transition to Zoic was interesting because it was a different culture, but also a lot of learnings in terms of, okay, you know, th- it's very, very different when you're trying to scale a, a sales team or, or grow a business and you don't have that brand behind it.
0: How you. big was it Zoic when you joined?
1: I was employee number uh, around 20, something like that.
0: Okay. Um, I think when I so, did my internship, it was like 45
1: People. Yeah, and so I think you, you joined maybe a uh, couple of years after I joined. But uh, really, mm-hmm. when I when I joined, there was maybe a sales team of three or four people, uh, okay. um, and a couple in in the UK. Uh, and we were really in in the in the early days of, of building that company, still yeah. in the older offices where I think you you interned on on El Camino. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was quite exciting because for me it was eye-opening to see you know how a startup was built um, and uh, you know I got to be part of the leadership team and I was on uh, an observer on the board uh, and I really learned a lot so I spent the next uh, three and a half years at azoic and really seen kind of the transition of uh, how companies uh, you know the growing pains of azoic yeah um, we we closed the pretty large uh, round a Uh, fundraise uh, in 2019 with SaveView Capital. Mm -hmm. And um, afterwards, I joined for a short time for a SaaS company called Smith AI. So Smith AI was founded by Aaron Lee and Justin Maxwell. Aaron was one of the early day engineers at Google. And I was introduced to him by uh, one of their key investors, NFX um and i was fascinated by the idea of uh, you know bringing they were basically trying to revolutionize the world of um virtual assistants with ai mind okay. you we're just, we're talking about ai way before open ai or before yeah. you know chat gpt this is a very very early days of uh, you know the applications of ai then uh, and I thought that was a very interesting sort of uh, learning of how you start a company with the vision, even if you're not quite there from a technology standpoint, you, yeah. you solve it in a, in a fairly manual way. So they created a whole network of virtual receptionists to help sort of the legal industry uh, with that. And uh, more or less when COVID was opening at that time, I, I had that sort of urge. Uh, and I asked myself, like, you know, You always want to to try at least to start a company. Why haven't you done that? I I was always playing it in a very safe manner, like, you know, a a comfortable route, if you will. Uh, And I decided that it's the right time to take that risk. Um, I'm fairly calculated on how I make these decisions. I I gave myself sort of a period of time. I said, hey, you have two years. Here's your runway. Of course, this was discussed also with my wife and with the family just to, to ensure that the risk makes sense. Um, and I was lucky enough to already have sort of a pr- few projects that I was in working on, uh, one of which was the introduction to my two co-founders, and Alon in Israel. Um, I traveled back then. This is summer of uh, or quite a little bit before, maybe June of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, traveled to meet them in Israel. Well, we spent the whole a few days together just coming up with, uh, with the idea and really crystallizing how that's going to be rolled out. Uh, and we started the company. And, um, it was, it was quite interesting. I think things were moving very, very rapidly back then. And, uh, 2021 was a fantastic year for us. Um, we, we were managing or we managed to close the seed round, uh, within a few months and really built companies that were based both here in, in San Diego in the US and in Israel. Um, And earlier in 2023, we decided that we want to shift completely, uh, the business and we can talk about, uh, why, why that, uh, Happened, and just a few months ago, I was able to complete a buyout of that business. So fairly delighted about that, and uh, and yeah. So currently, what am I doing? Uh, there's there's quite a few areas that I'm involved in. One, um, I joined New Fund, which is uh, the largest angel group here in uh, in San Diego for investments. More for me wow. as a learning opportunity, but also I, I just love interacting with founders and uh, with investors, and I'm learning a lot, especially about areas and fields that I'm not an expert in. Um, and i've also started to work with one of my former colleagues at mit on some uh, new endeavors and so that's that's mm. still in the works but uh, okay. pretty excited about this uh this next chapter uh, and aside to that um i've always been a sort of a volunteer and involved with an organization called meet uh middle east entrepreneurs of tomorrow which is uh dear to my heart uh, i've been with that organization for now more than 11 years uh, mm-hmm. and i just attended one of their events in uh, in Tel Aviv so um excited to see about
0: where they're heading. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. So so many things have developed in the last couple of years. That's really exciting. Uh, okay. There were there were a couple of things I'm really interested in in hearing more about. So you mentioned like the whole process of Kahuna. Like you you wanted, like you made the decision that you wanted to found. And that you wanted to try it out yourself? like how did this process in your mind go? like after seeing big companies after seeing the process uh, at azoic and probably also like with other friends family around you, how did you go around like making it happen?
1: Yeah, so there's really two factors in my mind that i was sort of uh, assessing before take, moving forward to you know meet meet co-founders and discussing the specific idea um one is the experience um, i think that in order to become a founder you have to have some understanding of what is it the experience that you bring to the table and is it relevant for a company that is sort of zero to one Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Some of my colleagues or friends are telling me, look, I am an expert in uh, customer support. I've known all the platforms and I used all the tools and I can do this great. That's not necessarily, though, a a role for starting a company or the need for that skill when you start a company, unless it's a, a specific innovation in that customer support realm. And so I really I think one of my assessments is understanding what are the skills that you've gained over time and how can that be uh, relevant to the role that you want to play at at Kahuna. And so I think my experiences both at at Google and at Zoic gave me a lot of exposure to sales and marketing Mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit to fundraising as well. And so these were things that were relevant. And uh, of course, you know, I have lots to learn at any time. It's not—I uh, didn't feel that I'm sort of uh, the expert in the space. But I think I had the right foundation in terms of experience. That's one. The second sort of factor or aspect that I think people don't talk about too much, but I personally think is very important. So you know, this is part of the, the honest conversation here: is your individual financial situation right? Um, when I meet founders that are telling me, "Oh, you know, I, I have to." Uh, lock down a co-founder and idea and raise money in two months because I will be uh, out of funds afterwards and can't pay my rent. Um, At times, I would actually be honest. And despite the fact that it's not what they want to hear, I would say, well, is this the right time for you to start a company? Or or maybe you should sort of go and work somewhere for a few years, gain some capital, and and then you can sort of work on the idea on the side. Uh, And the reason is because this is very important when you build a company that you're not constantly motivated by your own personal pocket. You need to make the right decisions for the company. Sometimes it means building further before you fundraise or before you can pay yourself. And you have to plan for that. And so uh, at that time, um, I was in a situation that I was already sort of, I had sort of some comfort financially and I could allow a few years of uh, exploring ideas. And I gave myself a deadline. I said, look, take the next two years, and put all your effort into this, but full-time focus on founders and ideas and, and starting a company. And if you haven't progressed within a year and a half or two years, then, you know, it's maybe a sign that, you know, that's not for you, or at least not at this time. And I would then search for another role. Now, it happens to be that um, I got introduced to Galen and fairly quickly from there. We just took it and, and built the company. So um, those were kind of the factors that I was thinking about. and. Um, I was really passionate about trying to connect my skills with an idea that I care about. Um, got in were the were word with the first people to bring kind of forward this idea of uh, implementing technology to try to support or solve the privacy issues online. That's, mm-hmm. that's a topic or a problem that I dealt with both in Google and Zoic when I was kind of witnessing the change and the trends of GDPR and, and mm-hmm. CCPA back then. Um, And and there was constantly frustration around, you know, user trust in the system and personal data that was leaking and and too much companies were abusing how much data they were collecting. I felt that we had something very interesting on bringing technology to solve that specific problem. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Like the, I remember the initial, the initial approach of Kahuna was to create like synthetic data, like the... (laughs)
1: No, it's not synthetic data. It's called, you know, probabilistic predictions. Um, it's using different types of events that happened, uh, as part of the user experience in order to make a prediction on the user profile predictions that are fairly accurate. Um, this is very, very important because this was a novel approach that did not involve any sharing of PII, meaning that there was no need to ask the users for email addresses, phone Uh, numbers, IP addresses or anything. From that sort. And this was very, very scalable data. Uh, now, of course, we learned through the process that um, it's, it's fairly difficult to create that data. And eventually we were able to do that. Um, there was just a lot of computation involved in creating this. But uh, it's a fairly promising and it's a very uh, I guess you know, attractive approach for companies who are thinking about their long term strategy of data in the yeah. context of the changes that are happening with the cookies and with privacy.
0: Ah, okay. Understood. So there is no one identifier in the data that can link it back to the person?
1: Uh, No, only in the context of uh, what's called first party data, which is in that environment. So for Mm -hmm. example, when you are on cnn.com and you come back, then cnn.com would know this is the same user that was here before, but not again, not by name. It's just by a Think about a string of, of different components, but um, nothing that would tie back to, again, your email, your address, or your mobile number. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context, of course, of first-party data, that data can only be used in one environment. Think about the internet as uh, I- as islands that are fairly sort of disconnected from one another. Every yeah. island has their own set of data of users, and they're not able to share. So I know there's quite a few companies now that are trying to kind of solve that as sort of one identifier across uh, different assets, but with the world that third-party cookies um, are gone, uh, that's that's a challenge.
0: Oh yeah, I bet. Um, I remember that when the summer when GDPR was launched, like how, like how the internet scrambled, <laughs> uh, how so many websites were were panicking, uh, how like the the impact it had on on the revenue, the ad revenue. Uh, yeah, I
1: mean, we were dealing so with. With quite of these problems, if you remember uh, back at Ezoic where yeah. websites were kind of left, uh, you know, there's new regulations, and and remember that GDPR was a global initiative, meaning that even if it's launched in Europe, if you're a US-based website with traffic from Europe, you have to deal with that, yeah, because otherwise you're you have infringements via your or versus your traffic uh, that comes from Europe. Yeah. So the problem is that. Uh, the regulation made a lot of sense, but what about the execution of it? And yeah. you see a lot of these companies that were struggling to make this because if you're a website owner, it's fairly complex and created this whole sort of industry of uh, consent management platforms, which were basically organizing the the solution for you to capture, to comply with GDPR regulation.
0: Yeah. Okay, so in the the process of of founding, so you met your founders in Israel and uh, were they already like planning on going to the US? because I saw that like you were, you were based or was it like a, just like a remote startup or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, actually, that's a really good question. I, I think we tried a, a fairly new model uh, with its sort of uh, pros and cons. Um, they were already thinking about the US as a market, but they were both based in Israel. Mm-hmm. And so off the bat, we we thought, and agreed, hey, it would be pretty uh, interesting to have the tech team sort of in israel we wanted them to be in an office close to one another while i'm basically in the us uh, in charge of the go-to market especially if the customers in the us need someone here to speak with constantly so the company was built with two locations basically a parent company in the us with uh, our offices in in san diego and then the subsidiary company in israel with the technical team um and uh, it, look, it's it's about ten hours different. So you know, it required us to uh, to be flexible with, with times. If you think about this, you know, I I would probably wake up early, start uh, at six a.m. Here it was already four p.m. Yeah. in Israel, and uh, my co-founders would stay up fairly late to uh, to interact with me and so make sure that the information constantly flows and we're continuing to progress on different projects that we're completing for the company.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I bet that that could be. Quite a challenge. I think, I mean, by the
1: way, just to add on this, I, this is part of a bigger sort of uh, a big question that I always had. On look, there's brilliant companies that are created uh, uh, in Israel with with very strong talent. But when you think about this, Israel is a very small market. There's about 10 million people in Israel, nine point seven, if I don't, I'm not mistaken. So most of the startups that are built for scale are not built for the Israeli market, of course. And so they're usually targeting whether it's the European markets, the um, APAC markets or the u s um and it it brings the question of like oh if if they're targeting that market, wouldn't make sense that they would actually be built in those specific markets yeah, and so that's that's usually a challenge what what happens and and we've seen this work quite a few times is companies that are set up in Israel, they go through that zero to one phase in Israel with some some testing and maybe the first few partnerships. And then usually they leap over or they kind of bridge over and and create their headquarters or offices uh, in the U.S. Uh, Okay. Or in other markets, of
0: course. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, what I just mentioned, uh, um, Israel being a a very small country with a lot of startups. Like I did some, like after this post that uh, where we started to talk about it, that shared I'm going to put the link into the description for everyone who wants to take a look. They shared like, unicorn founders of foreign universities in the US and Israel there is by far the strongest um, producer of unicorns that are based in the US. Like The University of Israel with like, 43 at the top of the list and like uh, I think a total of... Um, what was it that uh, Israel has now... Eighty-eight unicorns. Yeah, uh, I believe in the U.S. That, based,
1: uh, there is uh, three of the top uh, institutions. If I'm not mistaken, are part of the top 100 universities in the world. Yeah, and it's true. And if you uh, if you take a look at the book Startup Nation, they're referring to you know startups per capita. I think yeah. is second to the U.S. or or now it's uh it's on par, which is incredible. It uh, you know our internal joke in Israel is that. Uh, <laughs> there's no employees left for the bigger companies because everyone wants to be a founder, <laughs> and so there's you know there's more uh, more startups than than anything else there, um, but it's true and it, it goes back I guess to some of our culture I, I'd say of. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, the Israeli culture is about challenging the status quo. It's it's not okay. just, you know, agreeing and, and taking orders from above and just saying, this is how things are. It's It's looking at things with that critical eye and saying, you know, how can I do that better? Or why is it that way? Why don't we change that? Uh, it's very very typical, and I think that's part of the characteristics that are important uh for an entrepreneurial environment is to have people who are challenging how things are done mm-hmm. and come up with unique ways uh to do it differently We are back
0: just a quick technical mishap so you were we were talking about or you were mentioning that Israel with a country of nine million uh, is like very like very Critical about being told what to do, like questioning, like if things could be done differently, if it could be done better. And if I think about that, that that conceptually makes a lot of sense. It's like one of the main critique points uh, people in Austria have, especially like from the startup scene, because like Austria has like now reached around nine million, but people are like very conformist. Like they are uh, conservative in a lot of ways. And usually when you come up with a new idea and when you want to change something or like criticizing something and already like having a proposal on how to make it better, not just like saying that it's bad. Usually the first thing people are going to be like, yeah, but like why? There, it's not really a like challenge of the reasoning behind it, but it's always just a, you've got kind of like why bother? Like why make it better? like And how would you as being one of within the country um, make it better? given that you're not having some superpowers or being like some superhuman, but just like being an average person. Uh, but I feel like this is where it holds a lot of power if this limiting disbelief just doesn't exist. Uh, so like, how can one who's never been to Israel imagine this feeling? Like, it seems like when, when you put it like this, that startup culture is a topic that is being discussed publicly, that this is something that is core to the Israeli identity in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I definitely agree. So, you know, I I guess, and it's really interesting because you would think that in a country that has sort of mandatory military service, maybe people would obey more because they went through this process. But when you look at the bigger context, Israel by itself is a startup, right? Let's kind of just look from this and say it's been around for 75 years. So it's it's fairly new as a country and yeah. in these 75 years if you think about what we went through you know the wars the struggles early on the the uh, the innovation that came of making something out of absolute sand and and dirt right uh this is i think what was built in our culture of challenging the the status quo uh and just saying how can we still solve a problem with being very resourceful resourceful and frugal you know, we didn't have other co- companies or countries come in and, and, you know, give us the resources or solve the problems for us. We need to deal with that. And I think that's part of that uh, that mentality that is constantly thinking about how can I make things better because I need to survive, because I need yeah. to defend myself. Uh, and that's definitely part of it. Uh, I think there's other factors that play in. Um, remember that Israel is also a melting pot of different cultures and nations, meaning it, it's an immigrant country. There's no sort of thousands of years of generation of Israelis they're all from whether it's from Europe or from the Eastern countries or from different places around the globe and all of that sort of different perspectives are are adding into this very unique culture of, Hey, you know, things are done differently. There's different aspects of of culture that you've seen in, in, uh, in the day to day and in the operations of companies and endeavors. Um, and I personally think that's uh, that's the diversity aspect that really helped Israel uh, thrive.
0: Okay. So on the one hand side, you have everything is new and everything has to be made better and who else would make it better than the general public? So kind of like this hmm, yeah. ownership of, in a sense.
1: Yeah, th- that's correct. Um, and then on top of that, of course, you have um, support from... Uh, the government or from the conditions that led to the venture capital world in Israel. Uh, Remember that it's, it's such a small environment that, you know, I, I witnessed this really firsthand when I was in Tel Aviv with my co-founders, you have all the VCs and all the companies and all the talent almost in, in one location, I'd say Mm -hmm. kind of the Tel Aviv and it's in suburbs. And it's very, very easy to connect with the people. And not only that, Remember that a lot of people are connected via the military. So it's very easy to say, oh, you know, I I need to talk about a partnership with company X. Who do I know in that company? And all of a sudden you have five connections on LinkedIn that you know from that company. So things move very fast in that environment. It's a very good, um, you know, uh, launch pad, if you will. It's a very good sort of ecosystem for for launching ideas and for moving fast with if you need sort of the funding for those ideas, if you need the right talent, developer talent to build it, and if you need the companies to do the testing that ecosystem, uh, allowed the Israel, I guess, startup, um, world to really thrive and, uh, rapidly grow and, and bring us to where it is today.
0: That's so interesting. And like the, the military factor, especially like the connection it creates, but also like, I think what sometimes referred to as like the technical knowledge you gain, like within the military also contributes to that, right? Like that.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, one example of that is um, if you look at uh, so many Israeli companies that are on on, on top of uh, the cyber world, uh, a lot of yeah. those skills are skills that are generated via sort of your military service. And so there's there's uh, Israel's military, which is known to be one of the top ones in terms of technology and the use of technology can really then leverage those skills in the um in the private sector and in the tech world uh when these people are um you know following their military service.
0: Yeah. So how okay, like from from the lessons basically learned from from Israel, where do you see like it's a, it's not an easy concept to just like copy paste in your own country, right? Like a lot of countries are talking about how to make it more attractive uh, for for founders. And I mean, the US, for example, has a booming startup scene, like the major league of, of startups in a, in a lot of senses. And also, but you mentioned that uh, a lot of companies, a lot of founders from Israel then create their global headquarter in the US just because it's a really interesting market, a lot of things happening. Uh, like what are the, the things you could basically extract like also when you want to create like a, a culture of innovation. Like what what are the things you one could try to to change to make make um like for example in your community, in your country, like what would be things uh that could be implemented to what you could learn from the Israeli
1: um, Yeah, you know it's it's a very good question. I think there's I guess multiple uh a few pronged approach, maybe it's a two pronged approach there on ecosystem is one. Basically, you know, allowing those environments of where founders and investors meet each other, and uh, you know they can be connected with different types of businesses or ideators, or maybe even the combination of academy and mm-hmm. private sector to really sort of blossom and and uh, boost some of the ideas and bring them to market. But it's also those maybe softer cultural aspects that are important to uh to bring into the environment for example you know um, how failure is treated uh Mm -hmm. for a very long time you know I, i haven't seen until maybe 10 years ago enough classes or content around why failure is actually pretty good start feeling comfortable with trying and failing there are cultures where that is you know, forbidden, or or in some of the sort of corporate America, um, mm. I guess companies that are larger, failure necessarily means you're not getting promoted or succeeding in your career, yeah. and so people just don't take those risks. I think if you encourage and you build a culture that is uh, less risk averse and encourages you to take some some sort of risk and encourage you to try out and fail, experiment. You'll build, you'll build sort of talent that is much more adaptable and, and can, you know, can, can thrive and take forward some of these ideas, which I, I found that those concepts exist in Israel and, and maybe can, you know, be translated to, uh, mm-hmm. to other spaces or other uh, communities around the world that really want to focus on that uh, entrepreneurship. When you put sort of talent into environments with our, which are very hierarchical, where, you know, people are not encouraged to, to speak up. When, when they disagree with leadership, um, then you effectively, you know, um, limit or hinder the ability to bring innovation to, uh, um, to the markets.
0: Okay. Uh, gotcha. So now you've uh, lived for, what, like the last 10, 12, 15 years in the
1: US? Yeah, it's been 13 years uh, this summer, which is uh, wow. pretty exciting. We we never thought that we would move for so long, but uh, you know, we've been uh, life has been good for us, and you know, our our kids are thriving in their uh, own schools and environment. So we're currently here, but there's always, yeah. of course, that question of you know, uh, when are we coming back to Israel? Will we come back to Israel?
0: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you you probably also get a lot of reminders from people back home. Of like, <laughs> um, that they probably want you to have to have you back uh, closer to them. It's as you said, like ten hours time difference. It's uh, it's tough.
1: So yeah, fast. I mean, especially you know for us, quite a lot of our family are still back home. Yeah, parents are getting older, and so you want to support them. We have our uh, brothers and sisters in Israel, and so and of course all community friends that we grew up with, and so. That's the difficult part of being uh, in the U.S. You know, aside to the growth that we've experienced here.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely something to consider. When I was like beginning of my twenties, when when I just did my exchange in San Diego and then um, worked uh, did my internship at it, so like, I felt like it would, or I, I came in with the idea that it would be so much easier not legally, but just easier to just move to another place permanently, like to come to California and just stay there. Like over the last couple of years, like this going away, coming back, going away, coming back, felt like more and more how hard it actually gets to really stay away from family. Like really like the the people factor. Like Austria is an amazing country and I can see like maybe growing old here, but like the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't really see myself living there. It's just like the, the family factor. That's just, just a big thing that uh, when you're really young and just starting out and ambitious and want to do a million things and live different places, uh, it's just something you don't have in the back of your head as much or maybe even like in front of your considerations. And um, you would say this has increased over the years or... Was it always like a big
1: factor? Yeah, look, this is always a, a topic, right? And it's always yeah. a challenge. And I think that challenge, especially when the kids grow up, at some point you have a uh, thought of, do I want them to grow up with the local culture? Or maybe it's the right time for them to be more exposed to where I grew up and potentially even, you know, join the military at some point. So those are big questions for us. And uh, for me personally, you know, um, I'd like to be there for my parents when they're getting yeah. older and, and they would need my support. So it's a big question on, you know, would we actually make the transition and move back to Israel at some point? Or maybe this would be traveling more frequently or even coming for longer periods. In the last few years, we were trying to spend uh, the summers in Israel. So we'd actually come for four or five weeks uh, each time oh, yeah. uh, and, and spend some time with the family. And I think that's that's great for my kids as well to have more of that in-person time with with grandparents. Um, however, with all this in mind, you're probably aware of, uh, you know, the, the recent development in Israel, uh, which is, it's a big question for a lot of Israelis now, both those who are living in Israel and are considering relocation or uh, those who are, uh, in, in other countries and are considering to come back, uh, there's been fairly negative changes, uh, led by the government. Uh, and we, we can go, go into this topic. There's yes, a please. very complex topic, of course, but it's the first time that we're having a uh, far right extremist uh government which is taking israel to you know following what we've seen in countries like hungary or poland where they're slowly chipping at the very essence of democracy uh, until it's effectively what's called a dictatorship right and uh I, I take you back to that sort of notion that Israel is still a startup 75 years after it was established. We don't have a constitution and we also don't have a separation between state and religion. And for a lot of Israelis, that's becoming a problem of, um, recently there's discussions about separating and segregating, you know, women from men on public transportation or wow. in maybe in public beaches. Right. And you'd think, you know, um, uh, it's maybe it resembles a little bit the story of uh, Iran, if you know. Iran was a very uh, thriving country back in the 70s uh, with great culture. And uh, it's it's sort of the leadership that took it to a very um, extreme um, way. And I, I don't personally believe Israel would, would be there, but it's, it's taking steps towards that. And the first thing that was discussed through this year Um, is the changes to the judicial system that is effectively removing the power of the balance from the Supreme Court on on over-monitoring the government. Um, And that's the first step that these countries like Hungary and Poland would take in order to secure their position. Um, You have some of the leading members um, of the government who are extremists. Um, they are very religious and they believe that, you know, Israel should wipe out some of the Palestinian villages, unfortunately. And I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of the population of Israel does not share that view. Uh, you know, it's, it's people that are striving to uh, get to peace agreements with the Palestinians. And it's just, there's a big misalignment um, for the last 33 weeks. I believe um The nation is uh, protesting. You see uh, big protests. And when I was in my recent visit this summer in Israel, I spent my time protesting in Jerusalem, in Haifa, in Tel Aviv, what's called Kaplan, which is the main sort of place. And you really see young and and old people who care about the country and don't want to see it uh, lose its democracy to to this type of government. Uh, It has never been so dramatic. Um, And it's... It has impact on almost all sectors. Uh, we, you know, we had a long discussion here in this um, podcast about tech, and so when you think about this, um, a lot of the funds that were supposed to be invested this year are halted or are paused because the risk factor in Israel went up. You know, the crediting systems or crediting companies like Moody's have talked about decreasing Israel's uh, rating because of this. Uh, the changes that are, are happening. And so there's definitely sort of impact on the economy. You can also see it on on the currency level. Um, And there's impact on talent, where some of the doctors are asking themselves, is this the place where I want to raise my kids? Maybe I can sort of easily relocate to other markets. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's pretty severe these days. And so um, back to your question, you know, are you thinking about you know when will you transition back to Israel? Uh, we're, we're currently in a big question mark. Let's let's see what's you know how things are developed because uh, hopefully that it's we're not going to get to that sort of doomsday scenario, but we may not have the same country to go back to um, as the one that we left twelve or thirteen years ago, and so we'll need to uh, to look for that development.
0: Wow, it's it's so crazy that something like this happens, um, especially yeah. like with Israel being so modern, being so open, being such a, well, amazing place um, and welcoming place for, for so many people that um, steps like this are taking to, it's also like not only take the power away, right, like from the people, but also like closing itself, like more off from the, from the, the community, like, like more from the Western community.
1: Yeah, like- it's it's exactly what's happening. And, uh, you know, the, the, to add to that complexity, it's so interesting, right? Um, I mean, who, who, who eventually... What is the military comprised of, right? It, it's the people. So it's the same people that are now saying, well, you want me to... Um, volunteer for the military and you want me to do what's called sort of reserves duties, which is after your, uh, military service, you do have reserves for the following years, I think until you're 42 or 45. Um, well I, as let's say an Israeli living in Israel is, is now questioning whether I should volunteer and, and show up for reserve duties to serve this government. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I talked about this concept, I don't know if everyone would agree with me, but I, I call it a privileged country where the country actually expects everyone to serve the military, but that's a very high expectation, and uh, we won't do it in every terms you know the the pilots who are called for any duty to defend Israel won't take that risk for every government. They can say, sorry, you know we're, we're halting here. we won't sort of follow orders yeah um to you know, to serve under uh, these types of ministers and under this government. And so there's a whole discussion now because that's also problematic. It's it's jeopardizing our ability to defend ourselves in case we actually have, you know, um, things are heating up with Iran or with the countries around. Um, yeah. And so this is, it becomes even more complex because, you know, the, there's now two waves of basically people saying, or two uh, basically camps, one saying, You can use the military as that sort of, uh, I guess, um, to negotiate and say, hey, I I won't serve in the military because I want to change this. Or some say, hey, don't involve the military in this political discussion because the military is always about sort of defending us and we all have our duties there. So Mm -hmm. it adds more complexity into this issue. Look, I, I it, it sounds pessimistic. I I actually want to be optimistic that I think mm-hmm. democracy will prevail and I'm just seeing the the great people who are, you know, the great com- contributors to to tech and to the medicine world and to the academy all go out and protest. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I personally believe that we will be able to halt and to, you know, can kind of stop the government and uh, probably replace that government uh in in the coming months or Maybe coming years. I just hope that the damage can be reversed, um, because that is something that is a big fear for lots of citizens.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally understand. Um, especially like being being a citizen, right? Like the you're limited in the things you actually can do um, protesting. Feels like the only real option to increase the pressure and express your dissatisfaction with how the people that you elected to to govern you and to represent your your opinions and put them into policy. Um, right. To show them that right. You know, yeah, th- this is the whole
1: concept of protesting. By the way, I, I have to share this this learning because th- this is this would be in, maybe interesting for your. Uh, At least I I learned here something. My father has been um, protesting every single week since this uh, campaign began. And I asked him after a few weeks, but dad, you know, is it really helpful? You know, so I understand that you're standing with a group of your colleagues and you're protesting and that's great. That's admirable. But Do you think you're changing something? I, I don't think that has enough impact. And over the course of time, in these last six or seven months, you've seen the amount of people that joined the protests until they have enough power to actually shut down roads and shut down systems. And then you actually have sort of, you can start achieving different things. So I was wrong. And by the way, when I talk about protests, these are nonviolent civil Mm -hmm. protests, which are happening, right? And and there's always sort of that question of, well, you know, do, do we shut down a road or not? Is that interrupting the civil life or is that okay as part of a protest? And they're trying to do their best to coordinate this with the police. And again, I think the police of Israel is in a very tough spot because on one hand, they need to combat, you know, the protesters. On the other hand, maybe some of them agree with this type of protest. So it's a very, very difficult position to be in. But what I've learned here is, Yes, when, when you have, when you're fighting for something that important and you gain that traction, then you have the power to change. And uh, these things are, are, are they're not going unnoticed. And even the government at some point had to halt some of the processes because they understood that the the entire sort of economy would be on strike if they don't change some of the policies. So we're not done yet, but I, I think that uh, the next few months will be interesting to see how all this turns out.
0: But going back to the to the point you said earlier why uh, one of the factors why israel is such a such a driver of innovation and um well successful startups because they don't easily just roll over and uh say like we can't do it but that there's actually like this ownership of the country that you want to do your best and that you want to put uh effort into steering the ship into the right way. And it sounds like that translates in all areas of life. That's really Yeah, it's
1: exactly that resilience, right? Resilience is not just on, uh, in the military or in startups. It's also resilience in fighting for uh, the very country that, uh, that we have built together. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, right? Because um, I guess the, you know, the broader issues here to discuss is this government that I'm talking about being extremist was actually elected in a democratic elections. Yeah. And the reason is, again, because there's there's almost, they call it the tribes or the different segments of the nation. And to, to me, the, the analogy that I always make is in a startup, if you remember, maybe even in your time in the Zoic, there's different phases for the company. I mean, the, the experience that I remember when we were 25, 30 employees and the one that we had 150 was very different. We couldn't sustain the same model. We needed to change things knowing that we're going into that growth. I think it's the same with Israel. Things that have worked for the last 50, 60, 70 years may require an outchange because of changes to to the demographical situation of Israel, because of changes to the policies in the Middle East, because of changes of global dynamics or, or other other factors. And there's so many challenges that Israel has to work on, like for the long run, uh, propensity and the density of Israel is going to be a problem in 10 or 20 years. Um, of course the situation with Gaza and with the West bank has to be resolved. Um, it's one of the most expensive countries in the world now in terms of the ratio mm-hmm. between the cost of living and uh, what you're earning. So there's so many problems to deal with and maybe the model has to be changed. And so um, there's a lot of discussions on that as well, and we'll see how things turn. Um, but again, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Uh, I just uh, I'm very proud to see you know people uh, all ages and all generations you know, stepping out and really fighting for uh, the country that we have built together.
0: Yeah. Such a such a tough time. Um, that's really. Do re- you really don't wanna wanna think about how how fragile democracies are. Like how quickly things can be be turned around and overthrown and uh, just changed. Because in the end, like anything that in the past that has been uh, that has been established as law or uh, policies, like can be overthrown if you. If you just have the leverage or have the power or like in some totalitarian states with military power and some others just with a majority of maybe financial power, uh, that's uh, that's really scary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're we're seeing some of the flaws of democracy in this situation as well, right? And maybe it gives us learning that democracy just on its own... um, It has to be sort of accompanied with, you know, the checks and balances and and maybe a constitution that has to be a must. Remember, again, Israel does not have a constitution, which is maybe some of what has created this problem. Uh, We don't have a term limit or term cap, which is why uh, Netanyahu has been sort of in power for now. What is it, 17 or 18 years uh, and on top of all this, you know, we didn't even get into this because it adds more complexity, um, he's facing allegations. And it's one of the reasons why he really wants to remain in power is to kind of fight off all these allegations. He just doesn't want to deal with his sentencing. And um, it's almost like a prime minister that puts his own um, future um, on top or above the country's uh, ability. And that's really surprising for us. But, um yeah I mean you know i i I think that with some corrections, democracy would be the model that would work. Uh, it just requires thinking about it a little bit differently and making some basic changes So
0: you think that like, for example, having a, a strong constitution and having like some checks and uh well boundaries when it comes to like term limits would make would ideally make the country and the democratic model more robust.
1: Right, right. I, I guess specifically in Israel, um, I think a constitution would be a must and, and separation mm-hmm. of religion uh, would be a must as well. So the way that I see it is, um, by the way, one of our former presidents, President Rivlin, talked about he has this famous speech. They talked the speech of the tribes. This is in 2016 where he talked about, listen, we have different segments of the population there. It, it's very diverse, meaning you have Orthodox Jews you have Israeli Arabs, right? You have secular, you have people who are more kind of on the spectrum of different religion beliefs. That's all, that all makes sense, right? But we have to have some fundamental sort of, you know, your rights and obligation as a citizen in Israel, what you need to do, what you need to deliver, and then you can live your life in that home. I think that's the only way Israel would be able to move forward and that's not the current situation. For example, vast majority of the Orthodox religious Jews, um, they don't serve in the military and actually they don't work. What the belief is in that community is that you have to study Torah. Now, I respect that as, you know, maybe that's what they want to focus on, but that's actually not productive for the economy. So you have to Put some definitions of that. What does it mean study Torah? Maybe it's only a small percentage of people that focus on studying Torah, or maybe you do this on your free time, but you just still have to work and produce something from the economy. You've got to this situation where just some segment of the population is the one that contributes to the you know, tax or to the financial uh, mm-hmm. survival of Israel. And so I, I believe that, you know, on one hand, is just balancing all the different segments, and again, defining what is the rights and obligation who serves in the military, and what do you owe your country, and what are the benefits that you can get from your country. And two, yes, of course, is putting much more monitoring and checks and balances on the government to disallow a situation where the government doesn't have any control or can make any decision uh, out there because that is risky. The
0: but- the the factor of of religion I mean being that this is uh, like such a like <laughs> the, the major role of like the the history of uh, of Israelis in in a lot of ways like not knowing too much correct me if I'm wrong but like the the whole establishment of the nation like around the folk like the um, that was like the sole identifier is like um, the uh, being Israeli is uh, the, the Jewish uh, belief, right? Like the, um, like very, very strongly tied to um, the folk of Israelis. Like how can one who has no idea about Israel imagine like the role of of um, Jewism in the day-to-day life of Israel, least like in the city, in the nation, like on, on the streets? Like how can one imagine that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what you're saying is true Um, with the increasing uh, number of uh, anti-Semitic sort of activities that are happening globally. uh, Israel is that one sort of home for for Jewish people, which I think, you know, it was established really, you know, after our, our learns and our lessons from World War II. But here's the, the challenge or here's the situation is there's a wide spectrum of what it means to be Jewish and there's a spectrum of what it means to be Zionist as well, right? Um, I, I'd like to see sort of that sort of liberal, liberal Judaism as the foundation and then everyone can sort of live by their own beliefs. The current situation in Israel is that you have sort of the, quite a lot of the religious, if you will, orthodox Judaism that is controlling sort of some of the power uh in Israel. For example, if you wanna get married in Israel, you have to do it by, you know, the religious sort of court and the religious sort of state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't do it in a civil way. So for example, I mean my wife, we had a civil wedding um in in Cyprus, uh and we couldn't do it in Israel itself. And so I think, you know, I, I'd like to see that change. I'd like to see again, Israel would continue to be the the home for any anyone who wants to feel close to Judaism. Um, but I want to see it much more liberal. Um, and I, I don't want to see that what's called sort kind of forcing Jewish law on, on anyone there. For example, what we talked about, that segregation mm-hmm. um, on, on public transportation or even in nature, right? In, in public areas. I mean, wouldn't it be very awkward if you go to a movie theater and you cannot sit with your spouse? To me, that's, that's just very, very backdoor. You know, think about the Israeli. LGBTQ community or, uh, you know, our gay rights that are being uh, completely crushed by these governments because it's not by the religion. And so I, I'd like to see really um, Israel take a, a leap forward from those rules that were maybe created a few centuries ago to yeah. maybe Judaism 2.0, if you don't. Know.
0: Yeah yeah it's interesting how much how much power uh, document um, like the Torah, or like you said like with the Constitution like probably most known as the u s Constitution, how much that holds over a nation over people, I like the belief like uh, I don't know like I'm not super familiar with the with uh, the Torah but uh, like when i just think of how how often in the us like with the constitution being the document that reference whenever there are conflicts whenever there are value conflicts within politics uh between like people's beliefs and uh given that it's a let's say fairly easy to understand um document written for for everyone to to well comprehend and uh, live by the rules that it it has established, I feel like this makes living together a lot easier, whereas like in in, in, in not not just easier, but also like um, because you said this has been like the 2.0 being the modernized version, like updated in to the requirements and the beliefs and the things that we perceive as good in the modern world uh I, f- <laughs> I just find very interesting the like how how much power just having established something 100 500 1000 years ago or like even even longer a couple thousand years ago how much power such a document can still hold over modern day life modern day nations modern day people
1: yeah it's it's quite a surprise that uh we haven't had that separation yet um yeah I, I just think it's it's a stepping stone to prepare Israel for the future. I, I really don't think that we we will be able to thrive and continue with our, you know, engine of growth without disconnecting the two. And again, I'm not I, I really want everyone in Israel to live by their own beliefs and, and find their place on the spectrum of, you know, do you wanna, you know, keep the Shabbat and you know, you don't have to or keep the religious rules around the Shabbat and that's fine. Or some people that would say, you know, I would like to use public transportation on Shabbat because that's the liberal thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's, that's key. Uh, but again, it's a very difficult thing to change because once again, we never had that constitution. So it's the right time to talk about these changes and... Uh, um, I think it's the right step to keep Israel, you know, in that modern world and uh, not siloed, right? And again, I, I always tell my friends, maybe this is one of my learnings from being so long outside of Israel, is that I developed that perspective of Israel is not an asylum. If you've all your life were, were born and raised and lived in Israel, um, you may be missing out on perspectives of Israel in the global context. What does that mean, mm-hmm. right? Um, Now, we don't have the privilege of being in a silo, maybe other countries that are sitting on, um, you know, holding assets that are natural assets can can allow that, but we're part of, you know, a global community, we want to be part of the community, we want to have our collaboration with with the different nations, and uh, we have to keep up with the modern liberal world, to my opinion. Yeah. About the
0: constitution. Uh like being in the US now for twelve years. Uh is that like <laughs> um I, I always wonder when it comes to this, like how much of the US success uh in a lot of ways is due to this one document that has been written for the people. Because like in Austria we also have a constitution. It was established a little later than the, the American one. Um so like after the after the Second World War, if I'm not completely mistaken. And, uh, like, I I dare to say that 99.9% of the Austrian citizens could not cite more than two or three points of this text because it's being a constitution um, written less than 100 years ago is a fairly legal text. And thus, there is not much inside of the average person into what the actual constitution says, what are their rights. It is all like the translation that a lawyer would give you if you run into troubles or the police would cite you in to, well, tell you um, where you're wrong. But it's like very far, like the the laws being so far away from this document that has been written to, to establish uh, the country. Whereas in the US, like you just have to turn up like, if you turn on CNN now or even better like Fox News, you will hear politicians every day citing um, the constitutions, the amendments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you feel that like being someone who migrated who lives in the US now for 12 years, like has it, has it played a role in your life? Like is it something the American constitution that you identify with to a huge degree or do you just like for begin on, just felt like comfortable in the country, felt like comfortable in the culture, and it was just like part of the package and uh, just lived with it?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so the, there's a few things I would say here. Um, I I personally believe that there's a lot of impact, even if, if it's not immediately seen. And I'll explain what I mean by that. As an immigrant and as someone who's Jewish, who lives in the U.S., I never felt that there's any forcing of any other religion here right in the us if anything the constitution does separate between you know state and religion and so i i can live my life very comfortably with my own beliefs here without being in jeopardy or in in stress that you know another religion would force me to do things in in a, in a unique and specific way and so that's something that if i do the comparison to israel does not exist there i would say kind of as mentioned more broadly, I think, you know, there is much more openness and uh, realization that the, uh, you know, the U.S. Sort of, uh, the immigrants in the U.S. have been a strong contributing factor to the economy and to the diversity overall. Uh, and there's much more openness in this. In fact, um, Mary Meeker, who's now uh, one of the founders of uh, Bond Capital, but uh, used to be, I think, at Leonard Perkins had a great presentation this is i think it was in 2015 or 2016 talking about the contribution of immigrants or family of immigrants in the u.s and how it's important to integrate that into society and so Mm um yeah i mean i I really feel welcome in in our communities here um and i do believe that the constitution um has a great deal to. this also you know the the use i think is a different structure because the the state versus federal of course makes a big difference you know, yeah. um, uh, so uh, I I I think that that's where I would like to see Israel kind of head within the next few years.
0: Yeah, it's like also like the the way you described Israel to me it sounds like power distance. I don't know if you know these uh, there are those seven uh, metrics that are like. The the dominant metrics to compare different countries, cultures, and like one of them, I believe it's seven. Uh, one of them is uh, power distance, kind like between like lowest status um, person within the country given to like highest status, like let's say politics or like super rich, influential. Like how high the power distance is, how this is, this is lived in terms of like language, in terms of like formalisms, in terms of. Um, whom you're allowed to talk to and how you address a person of a higher quote-unquote status. Uh, the way you described Israel, like it sounded like the the power distance is relatively low in a sense uh, or like in, in the U.S. if you compare like the, the English, um, like just given by the nature of the English language um, that you don't have any big formalism when you address someone whom you don't know because like you is always the factor. Uh, whereas in like, German um, or Japanese, there are like so many different, um, well, indicators within the language that indicate um, being not familiar a certain distance with a person. How is it? Uh, is that a factor?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting model to make that assessment. I, I, I think that overall, I would say that the, the gap or the distance is low. You're saying, right, there, there's yeah. uh, Israel is known to be very informal. In that, in that sense. But with that in mind, I, I would sort of point out, again, the, the different segments that exist within sort of society. So let's just mm-hmm. compare the average, I guess, Orthodox who lives in Brunei, which is kind of one of their key cities, and that sort of person who works, secular person in Tel Aviv who works in tech. And so the Orthodox, they live by their own culture. In fact, one of the big discussions was about what's called core studies. A lot of them, they don't want to study science in English because they don't think that's important. They don't think that's part of their belief. And so now when you compare it to general, more worldwide metrics of you know knowledge or, or productivity, then you see a big, big distance there. And it's not surprising that that population is actually the one that is uh, very low in terms of that income or, uh, in terms of their contribution to GDP, Yeah, uh, but, but it's, it's not about the formality, I guess, of speech, but it's more about, you know, the education that you have or your beliefs. And that's where I'd say the, the gap is huge.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. I see. Like in terms of like the day to day interactions, there isn't, there isn't like also in like, a, a company in Israel, uh, the power distance between you and your manager um, would be w- would not be enormous. Like in terms of, for example, culture of um, failing or in culture of when you identify a mistake or identify an area of improvement. Like how much hesitation is there? How much like cultural barrier to overcome to notify um, a superior of? like some critique um
1: yeah in most cases i would really say that it's it's low right meaning that it's a much more informal environment which again i think that's one of the the positive contributors to the the birth of innovation and entrepreneurship is that you have that ability to challenge your leadership yeah it's probably there's a there's a, a spectrum there's a variety of different uh styles and it also, uh, it, it depends on the company culture as well overall, but I'd say in general in Israel, you'd see the distance is very low between, you know, management and, and place in the company. Yeah. Um, at Kahuna, I can tell you that we very much encouraged it to be, uh, it's, a, it's a very flat organization. Everyone has sort of their ability to, uh, to speak up and to lead and to innovate within the company. Uh, without being sort of fearful that if you don't agree with leadership, then you're out.
0: So how how do you establish that? Like uh, how in a, in a company? And like did you have you were three Israeli founders? But probably when you were hired, um, did you have like a diverse team of people?
1: Uh, most of our tech team, most of our team early on was was in Israel. We only had okay. a couple of, of folks in the US. Um, and yeah, I think you know one of one of the cultural aspects that you want to create is really have people, one, engaged and involved in what's going on. So we know less what's called leadership or founder meeting and more, let's talk about this as a team mm. and and give that ability. One, you, you know, you come want to come with humility and you want to talk about your own mistakes and, you know, where you thought that you were going to one direction, but maybe we're, we're shifting the thought there and, and showing that you're, you're a person and you can make those mistakes and you allow that and you talk about those mistakes, you're very honest about it. And you let people kind of, you know, be part of that process as well. Mm-hmm. Let them contribute to things that matter, right? You know, it's, it's involving employees in, in conversations about, you know, the future of, of the company as well, and you know where where to take the product and things that they would feel, hey, I'm part of this. This is part of it is uh, is my own uh, my own work here. Uh, it's like a it's like a family, right? It's really building a family, and it's it's tough, right? Because also, you know, as as a founder of a company you have your duties for the board. And sometimes these decisions are unpopular decisions and you have to know how to balance between, hey, you know, I I still have to lead. I'm responsible for leading this company properly, but I do want to give, you know, as much say as possible for employees.
0: Did you at any point establish, like rewrite down values or principles that you want to really anchor in the company culture?
1: Yes, we were actually working on this. And I think we, I'm not sure if we ever, you know, really updated those, but we, we did have, when we started a company, almost a document of here's our DNA. Like what, what are the things that we oh. care about, we value. And by the way, that's another challenge, right? I mean, because you don't want to templatize people and say, hey, you know, this is our values, you know, stick to this and then, you know, build yourself within these values. You want this to be something that they attach to and connect to, but also bring their own color. Of, of different aspects uh, to that. Uh, I think another another thing that uh, we've done in the past, and I think you probably have seen this as well, at Azoic, um they had that sort of centralized perk system where when we reach the milestones, employees get to vote on where to spend sort of the yeah. of the budget, right? <laughs> and... Uh, I thought that was a great initiative to show that it's not what the management decides to do; it's what the employees decide. You know that's the right thing for everyone, and so it's another example of you know, again, giving a little bit more more ability to vote to you know decide on the route for the company, and that causes the employees to be much more bought in.
0: To give people a bit of a, a bit of an image um, of what that looked like, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there was this website where everyone could like insert like launch items and then basically fundraise and you every month when or whenever there was hit the milestone every employee would get the same amount of virtual dollars that they could then donate to different causes and sometimes it would be stuff like a massage chair and sometimes it would be stuff like new uh ping pong uh rackets and i remember like one one item being on that was like a building a Death Star, like from Star Wars. (laughs) It's just like crazy fun stuff. But it was was a lot of fun, like just to put your money into those different items. It felt like you had some way of like using the company's success, like making your day-to-day in the office more enjoyable. And just this little perk really made me think of that, like this participation, like how that increases the ownership. and just gives you a really good
1: uh, feeling. There's a lot of these models that could be really done responsibly of, of you know, getting employees uh, into decision-making, into the, you know, steering the company um, without, you know, jeopardizing any, any risk or taking too much risk. And I think that's that's a great initiative to, uh, you know, to help people fill in and, and be part of it as opposed to, I'm a worker, I get paid by the hour or by the month and I just come to work and I go back home. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I thought that was great. And uh, honestly, in Azoic uh, the attention numbers were very high. You know, employees like there. There's employees who spent years being there and are still part of the company.
0: Yeah, I saw that so many people that I, especially like the ones who were there uh, already, like uh, Piper and Rob. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, still rocking it. Uh, and yeah. also bringing in like family members uh, to work with. Yeah, like I just recently went through and I saw like some people um, or a family at some point as well. Uh, yeah, like yeah. That, that says a lot about the company culture.
1: That's absolutely right. Building a strong culture uh, is important, especially again with the changes of generations. There's a lot of research, by the way, on you know how uh, Gen Z react, what are the things that they care about, and integrating some of that into your corporate culture is important. You know, it's changes of generations that you have to take in consideration when you're building a company culture mm. there. And so having that flexibility and, of course, focusing on cause, you know, there's um, a lot of people, they want to make sure that there's good purpose for what they do. And so tying in that purpose to what you're doing is important, as opposed to, you know, we're just here to make money and to grow the company.
0: Yeah. So, like, you've seen a lot of things and uh, have, have a lot of experience in the in the startup sector. So for someone who... Sits down now to found a company. To you found a venture backed startup. What are the what what would be your recommendations for to establish a strong and successful company culture that founders should do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big question. I think, you know, it really would depend, first of all, on, on the type of company and, and on who you are. You know, how do you establish yourself as the leader of that company? Why? Mm-hmm. And this is always a question that I, I you know, I asked myself and we asked in, in a founder group. Why would people follow you? You know? What, why are you, I mean, can they learn from you? Are you an expert in a specific space? You know, what can they learn from you that would help them in their career, right? If, if you hire them, if you build a company. Um, I, I think sort of this is a, a key thing when you define it. Um, the second thing that I would say is, you know, once you have your idea and you have sort of that first sort of uh, ability for, or uh, I guess nuggets of success, bringing that vision and that purpose that people care about. That's a very, very important play. You hire the people that really care about what is it that you're trying to change or solve and not just based on their resume and your resume. So, you know, making sure that people that you bring into the company live your vision or live this problem or are excited about your what you're trying to solve because is, is very important, especially because, you know, in early days, startups deal with a lot of challenges over time. And the one thing that really helps you is, you know, I'm here because I'm solving, you know, X thing on the, on the health or medical front. Or I'm here because I'm doing some change that helps pre- people or professionals or teachers or whatever you're, you're targeting. Yeah. I think this is very, very important. Uh, and, and then especially when you're a younger company or a smaller company, you have that ability to integrate as many people into decision-making as much as possible. So when you have that chance to say, oh, I can just sit with my co-founder and we'll decide a set of rules and we just kind of send it to the team. A lot of times instead of that, you'd say, hey, we can discuss some rules, but I'd like to have almost like a general counsel of the team itself and integrate a lot of their perspectives. For them to feel again, part of what's, what's being established. For example, you know, you can say management came in with this value document or Mm -hmm. we all came together and and defined our values and our DNA as a company. Um, and again, the challenge is always the balance. You can't have everyone involved in everything, but there's quite a few things that people do care about. Um, that they want to be involved in, right? Um, the the DNA or the values is something that I I believe uh, is something that is more interesting for um, the greater, the broader family, as opposed to maybe some specific financial details that not everyone has to be involved with. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So in practice, this could look like the founders, like maybe at the beginning of the process before they hired anyone already like sat down just to make sure that those two, three people are aligned on... Um, their values and the principles and how they envision the culture. And then after a while, once you have like a bigger team and maybe culture and values of individual people become mm-hmm. uh, becomes more important to aggregate them to like one standard, then you would sit down and basically be like, okay, hey, this is like, what were your thoughts? What are your thoughts on it? Is there something you want to contribute? And then, basically, after like certain hitting certain milestones, or whenever you feel like it's it's necessary to maybe correct or maybe to discuss it, uh, then you open it up to a certain degree for people to contribute.
1: Yeah, I think that's the right approach overall. Right. Okay. Another thing that I would add to this is um, when you start a company, I think it's really important to kind of phase your hiring when. You know, we had this discussion at Kahuna, should we hire more people up front just to move faster? We you know, we finished our fundraising, we have the ability to hire maybe, I don't know, five or ten more people. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is this the right time for that growth, or do we want to actually, you know, stabilize the business, make sure that we found product market fit, that we understand our audiences and sort of grow that company more uh, responsibly, and that's what we've ended up doing. Um, I, I would sort of try to do the same or give the advice to, to founders. You know, start by sort of building with the founding team and, and have some, spend some time with them so you can really crystallize and work together so you can help define these characteristics of the company. Once mm-hmm. you work together for a few months in a group of small, I don't know if it's like just the two or three founders or it may be a team of five, six, seven people working together, it's going to be easier, I think, to sort of build and, and, and absorb and hire the next employees and get them as part of a family that is already running as opposed to just start and hire a lot of people where they're very confused about you know, the direction. Especially, I'm saying this because uh, companies early on have a lot of pivoting. They have some ideas and then they sort of cancel and scratch it and, and move to a different direction. Yeah. And you want to make sure that you're sort of controlling that environment as opposed to just creating a lot of mess and chaos.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. It's like the, the whole value and principle topic is something that, uh, like I took a class last year, or this year um, at Stanford called like Principles of Entrepreneurial Decisions. And it was like all about like how do leaders uh, in companies, executives, um, people in venture capital that then work with companies, how do they tackle this topic of values and principles and how do they instill them? How did they update over the years? And it's, Interesting because I feel like with this whole, this whole topic is a fairly new one that it's so articulate. Like you have a lot of companies that have like statements written somewhere on a website, but you really feel a difference in terms of the ones that really take them to heart, that really make them like, um, like part, like they're like you, your, your values and principles are always part of your DNA, right? Uh, like it doesn't matter if you write them down or not, there are values at the core. It's just sometimes that the values that are at your core and that you display on a day to day behavior are not the ones that you write on your on your website like being the 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 best example of uh, <laughs> i think that's always uh, named it's like enron in like the years when they uh mismanaged mistreated uh the company they still had like transparency openness fairness like written uh, in the the entrance of their their company and uh the, the, the ways to actually like instill them, live them, correct them at times seems to make quite a, a, big, a big difference um, for, for the success of companies and especially like for, for like fast moving, fast developing um, companies to really keep everyone on track and keep everyone like pulling on the same rope
1: yeah it's a very good point like living your values not just putting them on paper i think is a key concept there um as much as values can be something that unites everyone and keeps them again with that feeling of i'm part of this endeavor i'm part of this movement community company it could also be uh you know uh the biggest sign of, of failure of we're like mistrust when you don't live by those values, because once employees start to feel, Oh, you know, we talked about this as a key concept, but we're never doing this. Um, it's, it, it shows sort of a weak, uh, I guess, weak backbone of the company, uh, a weak root, uh, a weak core that, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about these values, but no, no one ever lives with them. And it really questions, well, does that impact on our route or on our ability to succeed? Um, or do we even trust our leaders if that's the case? And once you lose that trust, I think it's uh, it's very difficult to recoup or regain it and, and continue. And then that's where employees, you know, they start coming for, to work for work, saying, hey, I'm part of this. Uh, it's, it's okay. But at, at some point, you know, that they will be starting to search for their next um, opportunity.
0: Hmm. that is certainly a lot to to think about that and there is another topic that i really like your opinion on it's like how to finance your venture earlier you mentioned that if you are a founder and your personal finances are in jeopardy due to your venture uh, like this is a very bad position to be in, like the the focus if you have to make short term money um incentivized decisions money focused decisions so usually conflict with what would be best for the for the business and uh, there is i feel like the the startup world or like the the entrepreneurship world i grew up in being born like 1996 is that entrepreneurship in a lot of ways almost feels synonymous to venture, the venture startup world. So if you want to create a company, especially something um, in tech, especially something modern, then you going to get a team, you build or have something to show work for. And then the first thing usually is you raise money for your idea. First of all, like to see like what is the feedback, but also because, well, it makes, life a lot easier to hire people if you don't have to pay it out of your own pocket and also makes your your life maybe a little bit more comfortable. Not um not financing everything um with your own money. But where I see like a lot of younger, especially like younger founders struggle because have like people around me that are that are founding in their twenties that once they raise money, like a Real race begins where the only way it seems is to make use of that run rate given how much money you raised and how much you budgeted. And if you run into some issues, the the real only way then to, to kind of um, either solve it or if your ideas and your model just doesn't work, you're going to pivot and pivot and pivot um, and then hope that y- until the end of your runway. You have enough to show for, to raise another round to extend the the life of your the the existence of your of your company. and uh, this is something that that worries me because i'm I'm seeing myself to found a company someday, but I'm really skeptical of looking at business models that require one hundred percent that just could be venture um funded versus something where you could make money early on because it doesn't have such a long or research and development period before. But uh, I find it hard to really wrap my head around what that actually means. Like, um, what does it mean to bootstrap a company? Um, Especially if it's something that's not like more a conventional business, but something that requires you to develop something and to fail and to, um, have an iterative process of development, and I' would be really interested what words of advice you would have and what's your perspective on the topic of going the venture route versus trying to self finance
1: yeah, yeah, there, there's a lot to kind of uh, uncover here and, and discuss. So um, first and foremost, you know one one factor to kind of add to all this is the is the overall situation of the market when you're doing fundraising. So for example, 2021 versus 2023, these are two different financial climates. In in a, in a world where you're sort of on that uh, uphill, uh, the the overall global financial economy is kind of booming. Remember, COVID was opening up, e-commerce is, is growing, all the companies are now spending in much. Uh, it was fairly, I'd say, easier to raise money, right? Or, or not as difficult, I'd say. Maybe that's the better mm-hmm. term. What that means is that investors, because there's money flowing out and, and um, there's a lot of investments being made, they are able to take more risk, meaning a lot of times it's spending on, on companies that are, you know, earlier in the process. 2023 is a year that, you know, after sort of the, the I guess, the, the changes that we saw in 2022, um, investors are much more calculated. And they require more metrics. I'm seeing this now from the eyes of an investor is that, you know, the group that I'm part of, you know, we're talking about early stage investments, but we're looking at companies that are already, you know, crossing the 1 million ARR with strong sort of growth metrics.
0: ARR?
1: Yeah. Annual run rate, right? So it's how much money, sort of how much revenue you generate in a year. It's an indicator usually of where you are in the process. All this means that in, in the financial sort of climate does impact what the expectations of investors are for, for your investment. So in, in, in times that are more difficult, you have to show more progress and, and more, uh, I'd say, conviction and validation for your solution. Potentially sort of already clients that are working with you, growth of revenue months over months or, or so. I'm in, in personally in the belief, and maybe that's not the popular view that I would require or ask founders to bootstrap actually more until they come to that phase when they're ready for for VCs. I've seen quite a few times, and I think we've kind of fit into that bucket in Kahuna when we raised, when we had sort of an idea, maybe a demo, a potential partner, but it was still fairly early on. Um, my advice that I would say is start a business that can already generate some traction, and I think this is sort of the, the difficult point here. Or this is sort of the where you really have to think through. Let's say you have a vision of of something that is a big vision. You're trying, you're aiming for a, you know, ten x of a, of a problem, something that would help change the world. One of the questions that you want to ask is, what is my step one? Meaning, what can I build fairly quickly, fairly dirty, to bring to the client to generate that first value? you don't have to build the product to already answer your vision step one in fact that doesn't happen i think maybe that's people are talking about the big visions that people have after the fact but but remember no company was built already addressing their vision it's it's just that entry point like what can you build and uh, you know one example for example is the company i worked with uh, smith ai that can say that you know they will in the future sort of integrate much more of that conversational ai to effectively replace every human being who answers the phone, right? Mm-hmm. You know, imagine a situation where you call up a bank and you are answered by a James or a Jennifer and they can solve your problem and they speak with you fluently. It's not like a system where you click one or three or say yes or no in a very technical way. But that's that's not how the company is starting or what they start, right? They start with like step one, you know, build a network of, of virtual receptions who can do this as they mm-hmm. transition maybe to technology one day. And maybe at some point it would replace completely human beings and so i I would i would kind of push founders to say build something that can generate metrics uh and and potentially revenue try to bootstrap for a while because that's also going to give one more confidence for the investors when you're ready to do fundraising but also you will get with to to terms that are more favorable for you because you're already sort of building a business now it's difficult because I, i you know uh Companies that want I guess the other perspective because they want, I want to give a balanced approach here. If you need to move faster, that's the that's the value of doing fundraising early on and getting yeah. some ventures that you can say, "Hey, I have an idea, I have a product. I just need 15 employees." And that's that's something that would be very difficult to do when you're doing bootstrapping. So what I say is, don't skip the venture world. Investors are important. Investors are, are can be supportive in in very various ways, but. Just push it one step forward with showing that you're already generating some metrics, some traction for customers that can talk about your product in order to get the more favorable terms um, on the investor front. Now, look, fundraising is a whole new skill. Yeah. Um, I I learned some of it when we were back in Zoic, focused on that Series A, and I definitely learned a lot when uh, I was part of the team at Kahuna that did the fundraising uh, and you have to learn sort of, you know, what to focus on, what investors expect as part of their, you know, thesis. What are the points that are, are more critical for investors? And, and I think more of all is to really show that confidence that you're, uh, that you know what you're building and that you're excited about this and that you'll know how to deal with the problems and you have a good plan. I mean, it's a lot about, you know, do you have a plan? Are you prepared for what competition has? Do you know where you're heading, and, and does it make sense? Uh, you know your go-to-market approach, or your you know even your, the fit between the talent that you're hiring and what you need to build. Mm-hmm. And so, all of these factors, I think, are very, very important. Um, I, I think a lot of founders that I've seen are, are two two critical mistakes that I would say. One is, um, I, I guess, there's some glamour around this world of fundraising. Of oh, you know, I see myself talking with investors and going to their parties and whatnot. Um, look, investment is, is an important part of a company, but it's not going to solve your problems. You're, you're not raising money and then coming to the investor and say, oh I have problems, you know help me solve it. You're the founder, you're the driver. They're there to support you when they can but it's really the onus is on you the responsibility is on you. And so you know spend x time that is required for fundraising, but that's not the core. I've, I've seen founders spend a whole lot of time on on fundraising when their companies are effectively, not doing a job with their operations and their day-to-day and their marketing and their product build, right? So uh, a founder or CEO should have sort of some attention for, on fundraising, but really focus on, on moving the company forward. Uh, mm-hmm. The other mistake is, is doing it too early, is saying too early, hey, let's go into this game. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's a mistake, because fundraising is not a you know, I, I can just dedicate 30 minutes a week, and that will be fine. If you do fundraising and you go through this whole game of speaking with a lot of investors in a fairly short period of time, and you want to maybe allocate, let's say, two three months and do all the meetings there, finish it, finish the round, and then move forward to focusing on the company. And so, if you start early on and you don't have anything to show, and then you're spending all that time with with investors, but you're not building the company, I think you're kind of you know you're stuck in, in the same place. You're not moving forward. Um, so I'd say, take a, take a few steps forward. Show that you've built something, and you can, you know, there's some customers who are already working with you. Then then have some shift of the time to fundraising. Spend two three months, focus on that, and then come back to the company and kind of stop fundraising for the next X time. Yes, until you have that metrics that are for that next round. Mm-hmm.
0: And to enable you to do all of this you would have to plan your life and to business accordingly, right? Like in order to sustain that time that you actually get those first steps, like either you have, would recommend people to work a couple of years, which also brings ideally some industry experience, maybe in the realm that you want to found in, And then you have like some financial buffer to finance yourself and maybe, maybe even um, someone else or otherwise start with something where you can create like if that's think you want to create a lot of value at least tiny value early on to get the revenue machine running
1: yeah i'll actually give you a few scenarios here and all of them are can work right there's there's endless amount of creativity opportunities here so um one there's some people who have money through their family and friends and people who would support them and, and they know them and they don't need to see more conviction to say, oh, you know, Jorgen is a great guy. He's very excited about uh, Area X. I'm happy to kind of get him going and, you know, put the first check or maybe bring a few investors and do that sort of early investing. So that that happens. Then there's people who work really hard and you know they built a strong career as directors vps and larger companies they have their stock and bonuses and they have some savings and they can allocate some of that to say okay i'm gonna stop what i'm doing now and focus full-time on my uh, my role and or my my new company and i'm gonna it's like i think the approach that i took on saying I, i'll take 18 months to two years that's the time that i have to to launch a company and if i haven't done it in two years then i'll uh, search for a role and that's probably, you know, I, I couldn't progress on that front. There's people who are building their own passive income from different sort of channels. For example, I know about people who built their online, whether it's e-commerce or affiliate business or uh, online business, and that helps and sort of generate some income during the time that they're actually focusing on their key uh, endeavor and venture startup that they're working on. And then the, finally, the other option is for the first, look, there's different phases, right? For that first phase before you will need to build a company there's a lot of research that you do and a lot of customer discussions in that phase you can do this as your part-time well you're already focused on your full-time so mm-hmm. you have a job it sponsors you funds you well let's say you're already a few years in and so you're more comfortable or if you're a manager or leader you have other managers who help you kind of take the role and then let's say a few hours every week you spend time on, you know, with your partner or alone on researching an area or an idea that you want to do it. So when it's time to kind of flip to say, okay, I, I'm leaving my job, you already have progressed quite a lot. Maybe you already have a pitch deck, maybe you have a demo, maybe you've been built something. And so it saves a lot of that time up front. And now within a few months you may be ready for fundraising. Does that make sense? It's basically yeah. your you you have sort of your sponsoring income. There's different sort of business models, um, you know. If you're if you're wealthy enough, then you know some people don't have that issue and they can yeah. take as much time as they want. Um, I wasn't that a position. I had to build my capital before taking that risk to be there. I also have my my mortgage and my family, and so it, it took time until I got to that sort of financial comfort that I could allow to uh, you know take time and focus just on start.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, where all those things. Why, why especially people in their 20s, or at least I feel like that, don't want to hear those things or are so eager to get started with uh, venture back and start with venture money is because all the other things require patience. And you just don't want to be patient. <laughs> uh, you want those, uh, or I feel like a lot of people want those. this attention, have something to talk about, this cool company that they're building. Maybe those headlines on LinkedIn and in some startup magazines, and all those things uh, that just that just get them excited. And obviously, like talking about that sounds really silly, but I'm sure that that drives a lot of enthusiasm for that whole space because we are we're glorifying it in a way, right? Like those headlines of startups. You just have to look at at Forbes uh, 30 Under 30. How many founders there then actually failed or even not just failed, but were frauds and defrauded um, investors or someone else. But there is like this whole culture uh, of like glorifying uh, venture back companies.
1: There's a couple of things I want to tell you here because you kind of raised these points. I think they're important. First of all, just for me, I, I always took pride in my career that I was uh, that I'm impatient. I actually think that my impatience drove me a lot through spaces in my career where someone who's more logical would maybe question, say, is this the right time? Should I do this? I just went for it. And I had my failures because of that impatience, but I also had a lot of growth, right? And it's funny because I think over the course of time, I've learned about some process where I say, hey, this requires patience, right? So for mm-hmm. example, now I'm working with my partner on, on uh, validating a few uh, business ideas for our next venture. And it's, it's a journey and, and I can't just get frustrated and say, oh, you know, let's just take an idea and, and run with it instead of saying, hey, I want to take a little bit more logical approach. It is a journey. I need to have my patience until we, we kind of focus on that right uh, idea. And so I, I've learned how to balance between my impatience, which I honestly think was a driver for my career and yeah. the the ability or the the, the requirement sometimes to have that patience when you're progressing in, in that process. Now, that's one point number two on what you said. I didn't talk about that beforehand, but I, I I do urge the founders that are listening to this podcast to think about this as well. What you see on your LinkedIn or on Forbes are are the uh, a lot of success cases and all sort of the what's called the pink world of like everything is great, everyone's raising money, you know, everything is succeeding. What what is not referred to that much is the the you know the cases of failure, but not only failure. It's it's what can go wrong. So for example. Uh, investors, everyone loves them because they give you money and you imagine that they're very supportive. But you have also to think about the other side, you're committed to their funds. So when things don't go well, that's not a great relationship with the investors, right? I mean, it's it's something just to consider. And that's why I would even further stress that ability of when you go to fundraise from your family or from your friends or investors be very confident that you you have that plan that you're very sure about what you're doing don't don't take the risk on on their behalf because they're willing to throw in money because that's going to basically turn around and come back to you when things don't go you know don't work your way it's not like you can say well you know we all took risk and we progress on Mm -hmm. those are investors that probably won't invest you in the future and so um that's just a point to consider is that, you know, you really want to be confident when you're fundraising is that you have that conviction, which is why again I'm saying like, work on your idea for a little bit more. Test it out. See that you have a great direction and you're very confident. Only ways when you're saying I know what I'm doing, I know what the market is, I know you know how to reach those customers. And uh and I, I I've built something to show that traction. And again, you'll have a better terms, you'll probably have better interest from investors, so you can choose what investors you want to work with.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is all <laughs> very valuable points. Uh, that's a, it's really exciting. Uh, also, when you, when you look at how many, how many great companies that are out there that are being built right now, like how the, the startup space is booming um, throughout all those sometimes harder um, economical times or like stuff like COVID, it really makes you excited to just dive into this whole world Yourself and being like an, an act like an actor in it, like to to be the man in the arena.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super excited. First of all, the the, the disruption of different trends now, especially now with AI becoming almost the core of everything, um, presents a lot of opportunities to, to change how things were done before. Um, and I think if you have that experience, uh, especially I think as a someone who has gone through venture a few times or second time, third time founders, if you have that patience financially speaking, when you can take more risk, it's a perfect time to innovate. It's really a perfect time to innovate. So I'm I'm very excited about this. Again, I've I've built my confidence on I'm not afraid to take the risk and to fail, uh, and so. Um, I'd love to see. You know, I, I'm looking forward to see. You know, what what we land on in terms of what areas we're trying to disrupt and uh, move from there. But uh, on the investment front, I'm also really enjoying that uh, interaction with founders who are bringing really amazing ideas and are uh, willing to kind of really question how things were done or, or you know, push the boundaries of technology. When I, when I hear about uh, a new you know, test or solution in the medical space that when I ask, okay, what, what exists out there? And the answer is nothing. There, there was never an attempt to solve this problem in this way. It, it gets me excited that, you know, we're pushing the boundaries of innovation and technology and we're actually adding a lot of value to the world.
0: As an investor, do you have a checklist or just a mental checklist you go through whenever you evaluate a prospective company? That you went invest.
1: Ah, wow! Well, it, it it really varies uh, by varies by a lot of different um, categories depending on you know. A, definitely looking at the founder uh, and their experience and what's called founder market fit. You know, are mm-hmm. they the person to win a given market or solution? You know, what's their what's their history been like? Have they shown progress in different environments? um i i, I really try to understand the market more um is this solution true are they sort of focused on the right trends are they seeing where the future lies for this industry is this an attractive client is the problem that they're solving something that is critical for these clients or is it a nice to have um, there's, there's really different criteria that we're looking for. But again, in, uh, I think in, in this financial climate, we want to see more proof and conviction versus ideas. I understand maybe that in some years, like you, you can come with an idea and you'll, you'll get the, the checks kind of coming over, especially if you're a more experienced founder. But, um, I think in this financial environment, you know, you come up with the idea and you're expected to come up with proof, which is, you know, show me one or two or three customers that are already working with it and what their feedback is and how much they're willing to pay or already paying for this type of solution. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I do want to see sort of some of that conviction as well.
0: Okay, gotcha. And Ohad, this was a great talk.
1: I yeah, I enjoyed this conversation you. a lot. Thank you for hosting me, and it's always great to you know to connect with with former colleagues. And you know, I'd love to see your journey as a, as a founder and see how I can support you and you uh, take that leap.
0: Well, I will definitely stay in touch and let you know about the things that will happen. to everyone listening, interested, just click the link below um, for uh, Ohad's LinkedIn profile. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And hear you soon. Bye.